Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, healthcare, federalism, and the law. And Richard, on this episode, we're going to turn to a development out of Idaho that could have a lot of significance for the future of American healthcare. And we should note that this is a case on which you are working as a legal advisor for Blue Cross, which is trying to roll out new health insurance options for Idahoans that would give them different choices than they currently have. So for listeners who may not spend a whole lot of time on the healthcare issue, they may hear that and think, okay, what's the big deal here? So answer that question for us. Why would simply offering new health insurance options be so fraught that they feel the need to bring in a Well, I think you've asked a very good question and you asked it in two different ways and it's important to note the difference between them. The first time you said is they are bringing different options and the second time you said they're bringing new options. When you use the first term, it's easy for somebody to assume that different means that everything you had is no longer there. Uh, when you use the term new, it carries with it the implication you're getting additional stuff on the plate, but all the stuff that was previously available, that is the ACA, American Affordable Care Act um, uh, plans, all those ACA comply, compliant plans are still there. It's the second element that's being used in this particular case. And so what you do is you see the Idaho Insurance Commissioner being very cognizant of the difficulty in the state. There were huge numbers of individuals between 150 and 200,000, the numbers growing, not shrinking, who will find themselves in the following vicious, vicious no man's land. Um, the cost on the exchange are too high uh, for them to do it, even if they could get some kind of subsidy. Then when they go off the exchange, it turns out they're not eligible for Medicaid and they're not eligible for the Obamacare subsidies and they can't afford what is available to them. And so what they are is they're sitting out there in limbo and what the governor is trying to do and what the insurance commissioner is trying to do is to facilitate a set of options which will bring people who are currently without protection into the fold under this plan. But he understands that to simply do this without taking into account ACA compliant plans would be illegal and a terrible mistake. So all of those plans with their traditional options are still available. Now, what's clearly going to happen is that the number of people in these plans is going to continue to shrink. That is in the ACA qualified plans. And that's going to happen independently of anything that you do otherwise, because the price increases have been relentless. The uh, problem here stems from the original decision way back in 2010 to essentially devise a program in which everybody's getting premium coverage. So if this were an automobile market, what the government is willing to do is to allow you any brand, buy any form or any model of Mercedes-Benz that you want, but it won't let you buy a Toyota Corolla. And essentially, if the choice is a cheap Mercedes and nothing, you buy no car. And now in terms of insurance, you're faced with the same kind of situation. So this is an effort to expand coverage, to bring people in, and it is certainly consistent with the overriding intent of the Obamacare program, which is to increase the number of people who are insured rather than to see them sharply reduced. Richard, we're talking about this as an Idaho issue, which is surely where it starts and where the people will be affected by it. But this is ultimately going to probably become a question for the, the federal government. Tell us what the process looks like there. 
it turns out it's very mysterious as far as I can tell. Um, the way in which this thing has already started at the federal level, there was a letter sent on January 31st by four Democratic members of Congress, uh, two from the Senate and two from the House. And what they demanded of the secretary of HHS and of the head of the Center for Disease for Medicare and Medicaid Services was an explanation of why it is that you're going to tolerate plans which are quote-unquote illegal. And their basic position was these plans have superior benefits to the ones that are being offered and being proposed elsewhere, and we don't want those particular plans to take place. So the federal government in HHS is already on notice of what is going on. It's also the case that the way in which the system works is there is general federal oversight Side of what happens. In the case of Idaho and many other states, the state assumed primary responsibility for the operation of the plan, uh, but there is in the legislation something which allows HHS, if it so decides, uh, to essentially take back uh, the control over the program through a long and laborious process. And it is also the case that HHS, if it were so inclined, could issue an order which says, we think this is illegal. It would take it some time to enforce that order, and only it could enforce that order. But I think it's fair to say uh, that if faced with that kind of opposition, uh, the governor and the commissioner of insurance would relent, and that uh, my client in this particular case would find it very difficult to go ahead with the program if, in fact, there's no regulatory backing. Uh, so essentially trying to figure out how it is that the HHS is going to respond to this program will be critical. And this is not only the case for Idaho, which is an extreme example, but there are many other states that are suffering from this kind of situation. So to some extent, this is essentially uh, the first case uh, down the canal to see whether or not it makes it out on the other side. And you can be sure that many, many other people in many other states are going to be watching this. So uh, this is, in fact, an extremely high stakes issue. So with that in mind, if this is going to turn on the discretion of the administration, let's zoom out a little from this case to some of the broader structural issues that are at work here. Because, Richard, there has been a widespread anxiety on the right for a long time and one that's becoming bigger recently about what conservatives call the administrative state. That is all all the organs of government which – Though they're populated by unelected officials are empowered to make and enforce rules that that have the force of law with that anxiety in mind, should we be worried not necessarily in this case but as a structural matter that a Trump administration or let's say an Elizabeth Warren administration that could follow it can have so much discretion as to what acceptable health insurance looks like? That's exactly the right question. And as you know, I'm long on record as saying that the way in which the Chevron test operates, that's the key Supreme Court case, which allows the somebody to flip over without an explanation one way or another from one position to another is extremely dangerous in this or any other cases. To give you but one example, um, if you've got one administration that decides that the navigable waters of the United States include rivers and lakes, you got another administration coming in there and all of a sudden uplands, which could be a mile away from a river or a lake, will be counted as wetlands and therefore the navigable waters of the United States. Nobody's in favor of that. So the real challenge is to figure out why it is under these particular circumstances, are you going to favor the exercise of discretion without allowing this kind of enormous flip-flop? And there is a kind of an old legal maxim. It goes back, I'm happy to say, to Roman law and has been consistently applied uh, throughout the English and American history, uh, which is when you have cases of 
abject necessity. You have to rethink what's going on. And generally speaking, the rule is that the presumption is against making any change. And if any change is to be warranted, it has to be on the narrowest possible grounds uh, to deal with this situation. And if you apply those particular tests, I think the plan that was come up with by the Idaho um, Commission of Insurance and the governor through an executive order actually meets that. This would be flatly illegal in my judgment if what they decided to do is to give an alternative plan and to deprive people of the benefits that exist under the current ACA compliant plans. But the ACA compliant plans are still in place and you have to ensure everybody under them if they so apply. It's also the case, and I think it's an important feature, uh, that if you're trying to figure out who's in a risk pool to handle high-risk cases and on insurance and all sorts of other defaults, if you want to go on this other plan, uh, you still have to meet those sort of risk pool obligations as well uh, so that there's no way to escape. Uh, The third point is whenever you're dealing with a heavily regulated industry where there's a dominant firm, as the Blue Cross firm has to be, you've always got to be looking at two risks and figuring out which of them turns out to be active. One of them is that the sole provider in this particular state is somebody who's extracting a monopoly rent, which is generally unacceptable. Uh, But in order to extract the monopoly rent, you've got to be making something that looks like monopoly profits. And if you're looking at this market where you have a succession of losses, declining market share, it's the other problem that you have to worry about, namely that the single regulator will put sufficient demands upon you that it's virtually confiscatory because you cannot stay in business and recover a reasonable rate of return on the invested capital. This is the second kind of those cases. Uh, So what you're trying to do is to run an operation which allows people to stay in business, and that means that they can stay in business both for the ACA-compliant plan and bring other sorts of people in there. This is not an opposite in which you're going to get yourself a situation in which there's going to be monopoly rents. There is a very tricky question of can you get other people to come into the market? I can say categorically that nobody will come into the market if the only thing they could offer are the ACA-compliant plans. It would be impermissible to allow somebody to come into the market and not offer an ACA-compliant plan. But if it turns out that this very interesting and well-thought-out compromise works, you may get some new entry into there so as to increase the level of coverage and competition. And so if you're trying to figure out whether or not this is a case in which there's prudent stuff, you're not simply saying, well, I've changed my mind. It's not an administrative flip-flop. What you're doing is you're responding to a very serious structural breakdown, and it's a breakdown which was a long time in coming uh, because all of these things were built into the plan at the time it stopped. But it takes a little while for these things to fully manifest themselves. In the beginning, some people say, well, we'll give it a try and see how it works. And then when they start losing money, they pull out. And on the other side, there are now very powerful organized efforts so that people who do have high risk are going to move into these particular plans. Uh, So the adverse selection problem that you face becomes extremely difficult, and this is a responsible effort to try to deal with it. So in my judgment, if you are sitting there as an administrator of HHS and you look at the past history of other things, you'll realize that there have been many waivers of an informal nature, not formally authorized by statute, that have been done with respect to the Obamacare plans on starting dates, on what you do with the MIDI-MED plans, which in fact were non-compliant. But if you put them out of business, then union members and McDonald's workers who have a transitory nature would get no coverage whatsoever. And in the end, what you do is you say to yourself, I have a larger intention here, and it's not to see all these people stranded. If you could come up with a better plan, as one of the critics, you can do so. 
But what you're not allowed to do is to take the position that Mr. Pallone and everybody else did in that letter and say, look, uh, the current situation is working splendidly. People get all these benefits. Uh, the plan may call for benefits, but for the hundreds of thousands of people who can't participate in those plans, this is an illusory promise. It's the same thing that you get in all sorts of other nations. You promise people a right to good housing, uh, but there's no one who can supply it for you. So the housing markets end up worse than they would otherwise be. Positive rights like the health care, the housing and education have a way of backfiring and creating chronic shortages. One favorite talking point amongst conservatives in the years since the ACA has been passed is that one of the necessary fixes for having a more market-oriented health care policy is allowing insurance to be sold across state lines. But another favorite talking point is the need for federalism and letting states go their own way. And there are, of course, plenty of states that are pretty regulation happy when it comes to health insurance. The famous example, New York State actually had a, a more restrictive market in some senses with the regulations they had before the ACA than the ones that they got afterwards. So, Richard, are, are those two principles in tension? Can you have a functional nationwide market in healthcare and a strong federalism component in healthcare? It turns out you can if the market is large enough. So right now, all the companies that have to be ACA compliant have to worry about complying with all sorts of local state laws, some of which go to the issue of coverage. Some of them go to various issues of form notification and so forth. And you could automate to deal with those particular kinds of questions. What you cannot automate to deal with are programs which impose such a high implicit tax on the system that it shuts down. There's a kind of a naive view uh, that under these particular cases that there's always going to be an insurance market. Well, it turns out that many insurance markets break down because of moral hazard, adverse selection, high administrative costs, and so forth. And that's what's happening here. If you allow the delegation to take place, what's going to happen is states like Idaho will be ahead of the curve and will do something sensible. States like New York will be behind the curve and will not do something sensible. And you will start to see a migration of individuals across state lines. And you will start to see a very strong political protest in New York State. Why are you not doing in our particular state what works elsewhere? So the hope would be that states of recalcitrant will learn if this program turns out to be a success. And if it doesn't turn out to be a success, there is a cure at hand. Uh, the company, the Idaho Blue Cross, will withdraw the program and will go back to the status quo ante and worse. But the thing that's driving this and will change, I suspect, the move in Washington and change the mood in the HHS is that the Republicans and the Democrats could not agree on any sense of set of sensible reforms that liberalize the requirements for being in the, the um, under the Affordable Care Act. And this is a point at which I've been critical, I think, as far back as we've done this show. Uh, it's not a sustainable plan. The benefits are too rich. The limitations on administrative discretion turn out to be too great. The review process turns out uh, to be too costly, uh, that there's going to be massive disruption. And what you have to do is either reform the thing at the center or allow things to do. Essentially, I'm opting for a model of waiver, very narrow model of waiver. This is not Chevron deference grand scale, which operates like a uh, release valve on a pressure cooker. If you keep this 
this thing shut, the whole thing will explode. If you let it open up, the air will leak out and you may have a chance to fix the situation. Uh, my first best solution is that I don't like special procedures like this. You're not quite sure whether the next state is going to get it, whether its case is going to be similar or different. I would much rather have a comprehensive reform of the legislation. But after the failure that took place in this first term of the Trump administration, the first year, I just don't see that happening. And so if I were the head of HHS, I would look at this thing, ask the questions I did. Is there a real problem? Do they have a sensible uh, approach to it? Is there any kind of structural abuse that they're engaged in? And once I was pretty sure convinced that there were none of these things advanced, I would write a fairly strong letter in response to Mr. Pallone and others uh, saying that, yes, I think it's appropriate to grab this lever, um, this this waiver, um, informal as it is. It is an issue in which the interest of the federal government is so strong Virtually every interest group in town is going to come to Washington to deal with it. And I have no question that somewhere around the line, uh, there's going to be a major meeting which is going to involve not only Idaho, but virtually insurance commissioners and governors from everywhere. This is a festering problem, and we need to do something systematic in order to deal with it. Final question. Let's say that Idaho wins out here and gets to deploy these new plans. You've now created some play in the joints at the state level, but the superstructure of Obamacare obviously remains in place. What should we expect the future of American healthcare to look like if, if that becomes the status quo? Some improvements at the margins, but the original law is still largely shaping policy. Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. We'll be better than we are under the status quo, and we would be worse off than we were if we had never put the Obamacare plan in place to begin with. Let me explain to you what I think to be the fundamental structural mistake. If you're looking at the Obamacare, they were trying to do all sorts of things simultaneously. They're trying to increase access. They were trying to improve quality, and they're trying to reduce costs. Regulation can never do all three of those things simultaneously. At the very minimum, it increases the cost of running these plans, including all the kinds of renegotiations that are going on now. Quality is extremely difficult to measure through government services when you're dealing this. Access is relatively easy to measure, but it's extremely difficult to compel people to take somebody. Uh, so you could try going to a national health care standard and get bankrupt. Uh, they're thinking about that in California, but it's, you know, the cost of the entire budget once over. It's not going to happen. You can try, as other people have suggested, that you give even larger subsidies to these programs, but it's not sustainable that you can do that. You could try at the state level, as some suggest, to put the individual mandate and back in place, and that's already failed at the one level, and it's going to fail at the other. The only thing that can achieve all three goals at the same time is market liberalization. So to give you but one simple case, if you simply looked at the state mandates that have been put in place in the 25 years before the adoption of the 2010 Obamacare bill, what they did is they required all sorts of goodies to be attached to everybody's health care plan. The net consequence of that was about 10% of the people who were on these employer plans, some about 60% down to 50%, they just disappeared. That's 15 million people in the American system. And what you did instead of realizing the mistake is you doubled down on a failed strategy. That's exactly what is being proposed by those people who say, shut down these alternatives what we need to do is to make sure that we don't have to have waivers for these programs to work. We have to have somebody who seriously thinks about trying to loosen up all the strings on the 
Obamacare program. Here are a couple of simple suggestions. Don't tell people how to allocate their money between administrative expenses and medical care. You have not the slightest idea of what's efficient. Ease up on the minimum required plans that you have because they don't work very well. Make sure that you ease the process of administrative review going on down these things. Keep this stuff out of politics on things like the contraceptive mandate and so forth. Uh, You can do a lot of stuff within this framework to make things a lot better. Uh, The best thing to do is to shut this thing down and to start over. But when I say that, I do not mean first you repeal and then figure out what to do. First you figure out what to do and then you either repeal or amend. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. Thank you.